it's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome everybody back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program, and with me, as always, is the founder of the odd, mysterious, and fascinating history of Pittsburgh, Mr. John Chalkowski. This week, we had the opportunity to visit the mayor of Pittsburgh, Bill Peduto, in his chambers. Got to ask him a bunch of questions. We talked about his favorite mayor, the city's most infamous mayor, and what it's like to be the mayor of a major metropolitan city. We started out by asking him where he originally came from and if he always wanted to be mayor. He told us he's the first mayor in over 100 years to be born outside of the city limits of Pittsburgh, but has spent most of his life in the city. I moved into the city uh, to start college at Carnegie Mellon at 18, and for the most part have lived within that same two-mile radius uh, ever since. Um, according to my friends, yes, I always wanted to be a mayor. Uh, I had a very strong interest um, in science and baseball growing up. Uh, I was in first grade when the Pirates won the World Series. Uh, I remember watching uh, us land on the moon. So I wanted to be the first astronaut baseball player. And by ninth grade, I couldn't hit a curveball and I was doing really lousy in science. So somewhere around that point, my, my love throughout that stretch was history. And I loved uh, history. My dad was a history teacher. And um, I would watch and read as much as I possibly could. And that path then led me toward government. Uh, and I knew I wanted to be in government and not practicing law. And that led me to local and I knew that I wanted to be in local government and not in Washington or Harrisburg. Like, I had a similar upbringing. You know, I wanted to do everything you could possibly imagine, and I wanted to be a rock star. And what I've discovered now that it's the future, and that access to records, which normally weren't easily accessible even 20 years ago, have now changed the game of the history of, of the city. And to where there's a, not a new history, but a, a hidden history which is now being slowly uncovered and, and peeled away. Uh, a prime example is the, the birthplace of professional hockey. Right. While we know that, like, we had a general idea that it began here, but there was no proof. Now there's proof. <laughs> so, or an overabundance of it. And uh, that could not be possible without digitized records and, and um, you would have to go to find microfilm at the Carnegie, you know. Um, so it kind of like uh, has opened my eyes to a whole new level of Pittsburgh, which I've never seen. It's not in any history book that I've ever read and uh, hinted at it, but now we can really get to the bottom of the story. And uh, when it comes to just mayors in general, um, of course, the most infamous mayor, we'll talk about him first, Joseph Barker. So what can you tell me, what do you know about Joseph Barker, the mayor of 1850? 1850. Yeah. So I, you know, if you sit in city council chambers, uh, when you have your regular meeting of council, that's the ones where uh, council is in one big row. And for a while there, I was at the very end. Uh, it's alphabetically. Um, that was obviously after Salah Udin had left. Uh, so I used to look up and... I was sitting under a mayor from 1850 named Joe Barker, and I just, out of curiosity, said, you know, I wonder what he did. I think I'll do a Google search. Thinking in my sense, you know, 
give me inspiration, Joe Barker, to do the right thing. And oh, was I wrong. So there's, there's history and then there's legend of Joe Barker, and I sort of mix the two. Um, Joe Barker, from what I've been told, was a street preacher. He was illiterate. He used to preach down in the area where the convention center is today. And what he basically preached was hate. Um, he was against the immigrants who were coming over to Pittsburgh. And at that time, the immigrants were Catholics. Uh, it was the Germans and the Irish Catholics who were coming to Pittsburgh. And he was saying that they weren't American. And he had gone so far as to threaten to kill the bishop. And the mayor had placed charges against him, and he was placed into jail. And then a bunch of young ruffians, <laughs> lack of a better word, uh, thought, hey, you know to make a great mayor? Joe. And so they ran a write-in campaign in 1850, and he actually won. And um, on his first day of office, he was sworn in, uh, and the governor's pardon hadn't come from Harrisburg, so he spent the first night as mayor in, the pr in prison, um, and then the pardon came in the next day. One of his first actions as the mayor was firing every police officer in the city. Some people say, I'm tough on the FOP. Um, but then he hired all of his friends to become the police, which then created a civil war within the streets. He had imprisoned the bishop uh, for uh, non-permitted uh, tap into a sewer line at Mercy Hospital. And um, during his time as mayor, the Catholic Cathedral, which sat where the Union Trust Building is today on Grant Street, burned to the ground. Um, he um, only served that one year. Um, he ran for office several times after that, uh, and after the Civil War at some point was found decapitated on the railroad tracks in Allegheny City, which we call the North Side. So, I mean, what an incredible tale, right? And uh, I, I mean, there's, oddly enough, you know, Barker's Place is not named after him. It's, it's named after Abner Barker, uh, which was a grocer in early, like, 1802 era, which I, I found surprising. So I'm like, why would they name a street after Joseph Barker? But the, uh, it's not, so it's a good thing. Um, see, one of the most important things I learned from history and um, – or, or what I try to tell people when they listen or, or, or through Facebook or Twitter or whatever is how to learn from history and not repeat the same mistakes that happened before. And uh, Joseph Barker is that prime example. He's that example that when I go to a high school and talk to a bunch of seniors and explain that there really was a man who did all the things that you just said and how to not like to learn not to do those again and, uh, and how to uh, do something better in the future or not look towards that story as a lesson and and to learn from it and not repeat it uh, unfortunately because i think most people just don't know about that mayor or know that that happened seem to be repeating it some time to time with you know current politics of course but it's the you know with with you know the comparison between the anti-immigration you know and, and just how bad that was for the city and you can see how obviously bad it would be for the world <laughs> and uh so it's it's important that you learn from history, and 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 I've I've learned now um, that 
that knowing everything in the past is is important, but using that as a guide to look forward and to, uh, in other words, there's no better person to ask about the future than a historian. You know, we, we, we've seen it all. We see how people failed and succeeded, how they made their mistakes and how they succeeded from that, and we can make it even better. We talked about one of the worst mayors, Joseph Barker, um, and, uh, but who, in your opinion, was one of the best or, or one of your personal favorites? Um, there's, I, I taken the time to learn the history of each of the previous 59 mayors. Uh, James Hill, who works as my assistant, actually put down the history in writing in the hallway next to the portrait of each mayor. So you can do a walking tour of the mayor's office and learn what the pertinent, uh, successes or accomplishments were for each mayor as you go through the history of Pittsburgh. Um, but by far my favorite mayor who also ironically I feel that I'm chasing his ghost in trying to correct his vision of urban renewal is David Lawrence. He was you know born into a city that at the height of the Industrial Revolution uh, born at the point uh, poor um, didn't come from a political background or have a political name. He, he built his own success, um, and he did it in a way that was very uh, different than what other mayors were doing at the time or what other mayors had done before him. He, as a Democrat, partnered with a Republican and created this public-private partnership decades before the term was ever used. He understood that the city's future could not be as a heavy industrial center. That although that may be the future of the economy of Western Pennsylvania, the city had to invest in a diversified economy. And his diversity was looked at as how do you change a place where railroad cars are running downtown delivering steel to a mill that is at the point and instead turn it into an urban center that is a corporate headquarters. And it would take 35 years for his dream to happen. Um, and by the 1970s, a city that had heavy industry at its heart in its central business district became the third largest corporate center in America, New York, Chicago, Pittsburgh. And um, his idea of building the Golden Triangle and all those things that we just take for advantage when we drive through the Fort Pitt Tunnel, which were all planned and sought, and the zoning codes that make our downtown uh, one of the most spectacular views in America, uh, all of that stuff was led by Mayor Lawrence. Um, I don't agree with what he did in East Liberty, the North Side, or the Hill, where his idea was let's demolish all this wonderful history and build new suburban type areas in those neighborhoods. But it gives me something to work on, trying to uh, restitch together those communities. I was just at the point for the first time in a while. I took the kids uh, down there uh, to experience the Arts Festival. And you, you talking about David Lawrence and just how, and this is not a knock on any of these towns, but you have East Liverpool and places in the Mon Valley. If it wasn't for what he did, we may have been that depressed type town. 
and just being at the the point the other day and just looking at the rivers and then turning around and looking at the city and just realizing how awesome it really is to to live here and how I need to get down there more often. I think a lot of us need to get down there more often. But what I wanted to ask you is being the mayor is not an easy job, I know. But what are some of the things you like best about it? What are some of the pressures of the job that just maybe people don't understand? And I know you don't, you're not necessarily, you know, complaining about the job, but they're obviously, whether people support you or don't, they have to admit that there are pressures to this position. So I'll start with the best part. Uh, the best part's very simple, and I explain it this way over and over again, and then I'll give a, a second example. I've walked into this building now for over 20 years, you know, first as a staff member, then as a council member, and now as the mayor, I guess 25 years, walk in the same door. Back in the day when I'd walk in and I would see somebody down in the lobby and they'd have their giant eagle blue bag filled with all their tax papers and they'd be ruffling through it and pulling on their collar and not sure where to go and I'd say, can I help you? And they would say, I, I'm supposed to go to the finance department. I've got some questions on my taxes. I'd say, come on this way. You see this elevator? Go up to the second floor. Make a left. You can't miss it. Thank you. And they'd go. Now I do the same thing. I say, can I help you? They look over and they say, I'm supposed to pay my... You're the mayor. <laughs> and they smile. Um, so I like that because I can make someone smile. But when someone smiles at you, it changes your spirit. So if you have people that are constantly coming up and smiling and you stay off of Twitter and don't read the comment section of the Post-Gazette, you're, you're able to be in a better place. So I'm, I'm blessed in that, that I get to have that. Today, I've gone to KDKA studios for 25 years, working for candidates before I even started working for uh, the city, working for council member, as a council member, as a mayor, and for all of those years, the only thing I could remember that was constant was Rob Johnson, the security guy who works there, and his smile. And I found out yesterday that he, today was going to be his last day. So we worked with Paul Martino and found out about Mr. Johnson's past and his, his passions. And we did a proclamation last night in the middle of the night, and we planned to stop by to have Rob Johnson Day in the city of Pittsburgh. He's a, he lives in Bridgeville, Chartier's Valley guy. We had talked about that. And I got to go down there today and completely surprise somebody on their last day of work in having uh, a day for them. And that, without a doubt, is the greatest part of being the mayor. You can really help somebody. And you can help somebody at a time of tragedy. You can help somebody at a time of joy. The hardest part is the time of tragedy. The hardest part about being the mayor in the question you'll never be asked in a debate is what do you say to the mother of a city worker who just found out that her son will never come through that door again? And you, when you're sitting with her in the living room and trying to hold her hand on the worst day of her life, how do you try to make it a little bit better or to take some of that pain? Um, trauma brings back trauma, and the job has a lot of trauma that a Congress member will never have, uh, that a state legislator will never have, that 
only a position of an executive, a governor, a county executive, a mayor, a president will ever have to have. Um, and so when you go through it, it sort of brings back the past and it sort of snowballs. Uh, Tree of Life was very difficult for this entire city. Um, it was in particular difficult for the Jewish community because it brought back trauma of the Holocaust and uh, 2,000 years of 3,000 years of history. Um, it was very difficult for me. And um, it, it lasted for months and months and months. And um, that type of stuff that you really don't think about. It's not the work. I love the work. I hate the politics. I love the work. I, I would do the job for free if I didn't have to deal with politics. Um, but the personal level of being around people who are going through pain and being where everyone's looking at you and saying, do something, um, that's the hard part. Yeah, that must be such a, a toll on yourself. That's a gray beard, I guess. <laughs> you know, but the, it's, uh, yeah, to, to feel that you are single-handedly responsible somehow for both the good and the bad. It's got to be a struggle. All of us who can clearly see all through the politics know and that there really is another Pittsburgh Renaissance, you know, and that future historians will look back at your administration and we'll say that. Because, you know, people ask me, what is the legacy you want to leave? And my answer is, I want to be a bridge um, in the city of bridges. I, I want to be the guy who... His grandparents came over from Italy, uh, whose grandfather had a second grade education. His grandmother never stepped foot in a school. Uh, who, who both grandparents worked at steel mills, who grew up, you know, where my mom used the sun as the dryer, um, and we canned our own food, and all that wonderful part of the old Pittsburgh and the heritage. And to lead across the bridge into the next phase of what Pittsburgh will be while bringing with it that wonderful part of the past. Like when you talk about the history of Pittsburgh and you look at all of these different things and you see it, and you, that's the part, I don't want to lose that part. And then I want to hand it off to the next person. When you talk about Lawrence, Lawrence was that person that took heavy industry Pittsburgh to corporate Pittsburgh and set our economy on a, a different pace that if we hadn't done it, there's little question we would never would have come back. I want to be the one that does that. But here's the key part of history. What Lawrence did was the Renaissance. It was the brick and the mortar, like it was the science and the art of the Renaissance. But the Renaissance was followed by the humanist movement. And the humanist movement centered on people. So my goal is to center on people. Changing the URA from tearing down neighborhoods to do, becoming a center for job creation and workforce development and training, especially in areas like tech for those that don't have a laddered opportunity. Having the URA focus in on investing back into neighborhoods so that you have the local um, super grocery store, barbershop, everything else in walking distance of where you live. Completely redoing our infrastructure from our water to our sewer to our roadways and doing it in a systematic way focusing more on the people side of it than the building side i mean it's a perfect way to say it because it really is about the people 
they'll outlive us. They'll be here, here before us, and they're here after us. And, you know, just like you said, acting as that bridge, you know, to lead the people towards a better future is so important. Do you ever talk to Mayor Murphy or former mayors? Because there are 59 people that have held this position. Do you ever think about, like, uh, the great fire of, um, in the 1800s or a great flood here? Do you think about, you know, what they went through? Or do you ever contact Mayor Murphy and just, like, how did you handle this thing? To, just using, because you're the only one that knows at Tree of Life it was you, and you have to bear that responsibility. So, first off, I have a great partner in the county executive, Rich Fitzgerald. So, we talk several times a day. Um, and nothing is ever a burden that is shared by one. We share all of the successes and we share all of the hard times. So I'm blessed in that. And it's very uncommon. Um, I don't know if any time in the history of uh, this city there has been that type of partnership between the city and the county. The second thing is, yes, I, I, I ask for Mayor Murphy's advice uh, on different issues and we get together and sit down and just talk without any agenda uh, about three or four times a year. Um, I have never had such a positive relationship with Tom Murphy as I do today. Um, I consider him uh, a great advisor and somebody the, who can understand somewhat where the issues that I'm facing. We sat on one panel together, and it was about a year and a half ago. And at, during the discussion, we realized we were the mayor of two separate cities. They both had the same name. They're both in the same geographical place. But the issues that he had to deal with uh, coming into office uh, with the city's finances on the brink of bankruptcy, the... Um, infrastructure in the city struggling to be able to do it the economy tanked and at the same time the the pirates just announced they're probably going to leave all of that happening he was putting out so many more fires than i have ever had to put out so yeah um talk to him often and talk to a lot of the people from his administration uh even some of the people from uh, mayor ravensall's administration uh, and because, you know, when you go down this path and you've done the work, you have uh, the experience and the advice to be able to be very, very helpful. What do you think it is about, do you think it's the air, the water? What is it about Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's past, that has created such uh, innovation to come out of the city where you could point around a room and say, well, fluorescent light bulbs, you know, had a start here, AC power with Tesla and Westinghouse, uh, you know, the radio, <laughs> um, the television, first coaxial broadcast ever was here in Pittsburgh in 1949. Um, first paid football players, first paid, you know, hockey players, you know, the first World Series, the first this, first that, first water heaters from Pittsburgh, first gas station, first movie theater. What do you think it is about Pittsburgh's history uh, that was able to, create and, and and build upon this this innovation then why did it happen here why did it happen in cleveland you know why did it, why was it pittsburgh first i have a question to ask you back on that i've often wondered if pittsburgh was the first city to do a radio broadcast which it was david conrad the actor's grandfather who did it yeah um 
who was listening and why were people going to the store buying this box that people said someday the voice will come out of it spend your money now and get it now i mean i never really understood that it actually ties them in the movie theater business and with the harris family and the davis family and uh they had that connection with the the department stores that they knew that they could make money on a on a a machine that could receive the signal and that someone could transmit so that's where radio really began you know like People have been experimenting. Reginald Fezzedin experimented here in Allegheny City uh, successfully before Christmas Eve, that famous Christmas Eve broadcast. Uh, he did that before, like in October, here in Pittsburgh, successfully. Uh, why that's not you know, in the history books, I don't know. But um, So, yeah, exactly, soon to be. But uh, that's another case where that information was not easy to find uh, previously. But yeah, that is the, um, the case. It just kind of grew out of commercialism which i assume why you would have a paid football player because people want to go see that same with same thing with hockey people they knew that if they could cram five thousand people into the duquesne garden and get these people to actually watch the game because there's good people playing here all canadians all being paid money uh people would come see the game but what about it is the um what do you think inspired all that what do you think it was the finances behind it or the because you had people experimenting, like Reginald Fezzedin or, or that Gustav Whitehead, you know, and all those different people, like, experimenting, coming up with new ideas that really haven't been done before or never were done as successfully before until they were able to finish it here in Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's kind of like this is where places became – because KDKA Radio, the first commercial broadcast, we don't claim to be the very first – because Westinghouse saw that they could make money off of radios. So they put ads in the paper before the first broadcast and were like, hey, we're going to be broadcasting the, you know, let us know what's going on. So it seems like a lot of people come here and they may have the ideas, but they, this is where they make their money and this is where it becomes successful. So it's, it is interesting. I mean, Einstein's theory of relativity was proven on equipment created by John Bershear. It was a South Side guy, you know, not that high of an education, but completely changed the the field of astrophysics. Um, There is a long history that goes back to the very early parts of the first Industrial Revolution. First Industrial Revolution was people putting their shoulders to the work. Second Industrial Revolution is when they decided and found out how they could electrify it. So with Westinghouse here, That was sort of like having IBM centered here. And so many people came here because of that. It was the draw. And then I think that what happened after that, Carnegie's investment into education and engineering, the University of Pittsburgh always having a strong engineering program here, um, brought people. And you saw it all the way until 1979 when Carnegie Mellon created the first program in robotics in the 1980s and the first uh, PhD in robotics and where we are today with artificial intelligence and the autonomous of everything and advanced manufacturing. You know, there's flashpoint cities like Seattle or the Silicon Valley, um, but they uh, maybe Seattle a little bit with the airline industry, but um, they don't have history, the history of Pittsburgh's making things. We, we both innovate and make. And that's a unique combination because usually cities, their employment is based on one or the other, not both. So I think that that um, ecosystem 
somebody sits down, has a cup of coffee, has this idea. The person sitting next to them goes, I could build that. And uh, it's sort of uh, small enough that those types of people can meet. Another example is like um, people, when they think about Pittsburgh history, you know, they, they, they think about the steel industry, of course, you know, the steelers, you know. Um, but when you think about the future of Pittsburgh, you know, I don't think steel, <laughs> you know, and I don't think coal or other things, you know. And, and I really get the, the, the feel that through all the innovation, the continued innovation, the hundreds of years of history, which have backed it all up, are really are pushing us to the leader of the, of the future. I mean, with AI technology, and I always tell people, to, you know, if you like Terminator, this is probably where it's going to begin. <laughs> but that's a good thing, though, you know, like that, that the fact that, that, that technology was always here and it's growing exponentially. And, um, and people are looking at our city again instead of, um, you know, not saying, well, that's an old smoky town, you know, full of coal, you know, coal mines and, and steel mills. There's so much more to the city that, that has come because of these great innovations. And, um, and, and I, I just think it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch. And, uh, and, and the positive, there's a positive outlook, and I feel good about it, the future of, of Pittsburgh. There's two key areas that uh, we talk about up and down this hallway. And the first is keeping Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, everything we were talking about before. How do we take all the good things that we were, even when economically we were destroyed, and making sure that they're around for the next generation. The second part is how do you build a Pittsburgh for all? So if Skynet were to come to Pittsburgh 10 years ago, they would most likely be in Oakland. If Skynet were to come to Pittsburgh today and sit down in our conference room, um, they would be looking at Lawrenceville, they'd be looking at the Strip, they'd be looking at the north side, they'd be looking at the south side. They'd be looking at the downtown area, the 28 acres um, by the arena site in the lower hill. They'd be looking at Hazelwood. Um, and soon, so many other areas. Our goal is to make sure that as we go through this next transition, we don't make the mistakes that we made when we were the industrial giant that we're not creating air that is dangerous to breathe or water that's poisonous to drink or the greatest disparity between the haves and the have-nots. Common, common sense, but, but you have to bake it into the process. And so we want to be able to create policies and programs that make that opportunity available to everyone. Whether you have a Ph.D. or a GED, there's going to be an opportunity for you in the next economy as the city. You met with the Dalai Lama. Uh, what type of advice or what did he give you that you brought back with you? Did anything stick with you uh, that you brought back? Yeah. Um, friends and staff told me I came back in a different mood. Um, and it's, I don't know what it was. I mean, it, and it wasn't any one thing. I asked him one question that was basically, I have this great opportunity. I can do all these great things. I'm, I'm the mayor of a major American city. How do you balance that without feeling like the pressure of the world's on your shoulders? And he gave me a common sense answer. He said, if you love what you're doing, there is no pressure. You know, it's, it's like, this is great. I, I got to do all this. It's not a burden. It's a joy. And it's all how you perceive it yourself of whether it is a joy or it's a burden. And so I started thinking more about how much I really do enjoy getting up every morning and going to work. And so I should be appreciating it more, not uh, looking at it the other way. Very similar advice 
that I received today from Elmo. So, and I said that, you know, Elmo is sort of like, you know, a puppet that is uh, the Dalai Lama. That uh, the, Both of them talk about compassion. Both of them talk about kindness and understanding. And um, I don't know, there was nothing magical that happened in that visit. I feel like it was a bucket list that having the opportunity to do it, I had to go. Um, and I'm happy that I did. Um, but I just think that it's an appreciation of what you have instead of a uh, uh, consternation of what you don't. And if you can live life that way, you're blessed. I have one question for each of you. Just one question that I have, because I get asked this a lot. If you were to live in one time period of Pittsburgh's history, which one would you choose? Oh, I got an easy answer for that. It have to be 1895 to 1905 in particular, even though I know... It would have been the cleanest, <laughs> and uh, you, you, but you, it was on the verge of everything that seemed to be happening. Everything in pop culture, uh, the evolution of automobiles, and, and just uh, the theater aspect of it all, and just that, and all the sports that's going on in that time period. I, I think there was no other better time than that late 1890s, 19, up to 1910 era of Pittsburgh to really be in. Although, I must say, there really is no better time to live in Pittsburgh right now. <laughs> um, I'm a rabid Pirates fan, so my obvious answer would be like the 70s. But I got to say the post-war 40s because I'm in love with old-time radio and just that um, I romanticized that period. So just to try and get a job doing a, you know, a radio play once a week or something and just walking downtown and seeing the lights and the, wearing the hats and the suits and everything, that was just my... Uh, what about you? Um, well, there's enough people still alive that can tell you all about the 40s, and I certainly can tell you about the 70s, uh, and being a huge baseball fan at that point in Pirates winning the World Series as I'm starting first grade, but um, in 71. The time period that I would w love to have seen what this place was like is around 1750 to 1820. I can't imagine what it would be like with trout filling the Allegheny and mountain lions in, right, and yeah, but all of that, um, and then seeing it transform into an actual town, like being one of those early pioneers. My dad used to tell me the story about, uh, uh, I think it was during Pontiac's Revenge, the the attack that happened out in Collier Township. Yeah, that's a, yeah, the siege of Fort Pitt. But um, and how they uh, took the children and then they crossed over the Allegheny and went and actually the entire north side, like you didn't go over there, because that was Native American and boy would that be interesting. Because nobody knew there was on un, unconsecrated ground, you know, uh, and uh, settlers going over there and uh, not appeasing the Native American, you know, gods of Manitou or whatever the like. But yeah, I mean, that area, that era of Pittsburgh history, the most interesting thing, I, I studied it, the Pittsburgh streets, like the history of the Pittsburgh streets. Like, why is it called Grant Street? Why is it called Smith? Who's Smithfield? You know, like, what is this? And that story leads you all the way back to the very beginning, back to Fort Duquesne. Well, Fort, you know, Prince St. Uh, St. Prince George was the first fort. And then Fort Duquesne, Fort Pitt, Fort Dunmore, <laughs> but just how the roads developed and, and how things evolved on just the individual alleyways and roads and all the different lanes. And you can really see like, almost like playing Sim City, uh, you know, how things just kind of evolve and build and, you know, what needs to happen. And, and, you, and you see how a community grows from the ground up.
and how one misstep would have failed and you know one succeeded and uh, it's cool one last story and then i really do have to go but um we hired a consultant to come in from copenhagen uh gale and associates g-e-h-l and we gave them the challenge of making our downtown area more pedestrian friendly and what they did is they came up with this this map that that said there's a meandering path that goes from the point up basically to the U.S. Steel Building. And this meandering path is really a way that we should highlight pedestrian uh, accessibility. And then we hired, the Penguins hired a, another consultant from uh, Copenhagen, big uh, international architecture firm. And they wanted to make sure that we were connecting the hill back down to downtown. And they said, what we found is there's a meandering path that comes up from where Wiley Avenue was through this site and ends at the U.S. Steel Building. And both of these international consultants, I believe, found a Native American path. And I think that they found the way that people had gone for centuries and that the city was designed around it. And the, that natural path is still there, even though the buildings had been built around it. It was uh, Sookie's Run. You know, it was like a little culvert that kind of ran through there, which they eventually built Boyd's Hill next to that and, and with Grant's Hill in the middle. And But those paths, yeah, I mean, going all the way back. They connected. The yeah. two, and they never met each, well, they met each other, obviously, yeah. hundreds of times, but never met each other about this project once. Well, you know, the, uh, the, the story behind the name of Pittsburgh, you know, not just Pittsburgh, but Dionega, the original Native American uh, name, means the confluence or the, the point, you know, the where two paths meet. So it's a that's it, Fort Pitt.